Well, I want to thank you all for being here with us tonight. It's cold out there, and I'm confused. Uh, it's February today, and I'm pretty sure a couple days ago it was March or April. But <laughs> anyway, I'm glad you're here. And if you're visiting with us, we are uh, continuing in our chapter studies. And tonight we are looking at 2 Corinthians verse 9. And now, Monty preached to us a couple weeks ago on verse 8, and some of the things that Paul writes, um, they're kind of chopped up topic by topic. I think that verse 8 and verse 9 go hand in hand together, uh, leading right into the thoughts, looking back on what Monty talked about. And it could be one big chapter. So we've got a nice, short, concise chapter with a good topic, and I think a lot of, of good study about it. This is my first time using this thing. It seems awfully loud to me. Not okay. So we talked about uh, the Macedonians up north in Corinth. How dirt poor they were. They were in a bind, and Paul made it known that they went above and beyond the call, and pulled money together and gave back to their Lord. And literally raised the bar. They just did so much that it just, it just blew Paul's mind. And we talked about in our last study the how we're made rich in Christ. And we talked about our offering and, and the sincerity in it. And interestingly enough, how it's evident that we can be um, judged against one another and against other congregations in, in our generosity um, in verse 8, Paul says that I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Now, there's not some kind of a ledger that we have a record of all of our offerings in here that everybody's looking at and everybody knows about and you just weren't told. That's not the case. But there is definitely evidence of what people are doing in their lives, and we can, we can look at ourselves and consider where we stand with that. Paul turns a little bit more attention here in chapter 9 to the congregation at Achaia and to the individual giver and how God wants us to give. Uh, so I'd like to kind of frame our minds on the idea of worldly wealth first. And whenever I have, um, I guess, a unique experience or something interesting, I, I like to think about uh, how that fits in with our faith, and I like to try to use that in a study if I can. And so on Friday last week, I had the opportunity to hear a very interesting speaker make a presentation. Now, I'll just give a little brief summary because uh, he wasn't presenting anything that has to do with Christianity, and it was a little bit political in nature, but there's a lot of people in the world that uh, are very pro-conservationist, uh, environmentalist, and they don't want pollution, and nobody does. That's bad, right? And so they want to get rid of fossil fuels and do things very clean. Okay, so this guy, he agrees there's pollution there, there's, there's impact there, but he looks at it kind of like an antibiotic. Yeah, you might have side effects, but you might die if you don't take it. And so his case was the moral case for fossil fuels and what it's done for humanity throughout our history. And so his study was very interesting in that uh, as more and more cheap energy is available to us, the quality of life, availability of clean water, health, longevity, all these different measures of things that kind of indicate whether or not we're doing all right as, as civilization. 
And uh, it's interesting. He's, he was about my age. He was actually a philosopher. He, he's got a degree in philosophy, and you can make money at that, apparently. So <laughs> if you write a book. Um, he debates politicians and, and makes his case and goes to these places where people are protesting, and he holds up a sign that says, I love fossil fuels, and he wants to start a conversation. And his points are really irrefutable. Um, but all that aside, it's kind of a why I think of this. The thing that impacts me when I consider that and I read what Paul's writings are wealth. When I think about quality of life and all of this thing that, that he's speaking on, that humanity has, has increased and, and flourished from because of energy, and then I look at Paul's words on giving, wealth is just where it really hits. So I want to think of wealth in terms that, that we know today as Americans living generally a really swell life. I mean, things are really good. And I think of wealth and its importance to sustaining life a couple thousand years ago. Now, that's a different picture, right? How much of our wealth to give, how much can we handle giving and survive? That's, that was serious business. The tithing was very carefully measured out. It's not so much these days. I mean, it's, it's kind of easy for us to give. Well, what's my point? The point is that we know, and the Christians back then knew very well, that worldly wealth is temporal. And that our real treasure is laid up in heaven. But still, there's this huge difference in our ability to give now compared to their ability to give then. Yet, do we give more because we have more to give? Are we giving more because we're more able to? Well, I don't know, honestly. I can't say how much they give. I don't know if they were giving to the brink of barely able to get by or if they were just giving a little bit. But that's something to think about because the situation's different. When you think about our wealth and how much we really hold on to it, how precious it is to us and how precious it should be to us. So that's kind of the mindset as I read and study what Paul wrote here in 2 Corinthians 9. <clears throat> Uh, so, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Say, so superfluous means not necessary, over the top. So what it's saying here is concerning the ministering to the saints, in the matter of giving money to fellow Christians, it's superfluous, it's completely unnecessary for Paul to be writing this. He's preaching to the choir. <clears throat> He's even bragging about how they've been ready and willing to give selflessly for a year now, and that's inspiring to others. Well, why is he writing it? In my household, you learn to pick up on sarcasm. This looks like sarcasm to me. Or... He's kind of joking about it, ribbing them a little bit, some undertones of being serious. But reading on, we can start to get the hint. Verse 3, he says, Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready. Lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand 
which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. So we can see what Paul's doing here. You ever tell your kids something like, I know I don't even need to mention cleaning your room because you know your cousins are coming to town tomorrow and we've bragged so much about how you always keep your room so clean and ready for guests to come over and play and they're going to be here tomorrow. Well, maybe I should just make a quick room inspection in the morning to make sure because wouldn't that be embarrassing after all that bragging for them to show up and the place is a wreck. Okay, so that's what's going on here. Paul's being serious. He's telling them he knows that they know what they need to do. But he's just making sure that it's done as it should be. So he's sending the brethren to get this offering gathered up and organize the delivery of it. This is one way Paul helps to ensure that this is a sincere gift rather than something they had to do without really much choice because Paul's coming to town. It shouldn't have anything to do with Paul coming other than he's the one that taught him about it. It should be all about generous and cheerful giving out of love, just like God wants and has taught us. So then he moves a little bit more into how we give and how we should be thinking about this. And in verse 6, Paul says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's pretty plain spoken. But to be clear, Paul isn't saying that giving is a financial investment. Sowing more, meaning giving more of the money that you have, doesn't mean that we should expect bountiful returns on that investment. It's not, a, it's not a trust fund or whatever. We can expect bountiful blessings from God, and it may mean that more money will come our way, but it may not. And though we believe that God blesses us when we're in his favor and doing his will, we still can't be thinking of this in any way as making some kind of a deal for our own gain. We don't give money to get more money. And even though we're likely to gain blessings from God, we can't feel like this is some kind of a necessity in order to gain those blessings. That's what it means to give grudgingly. If you'd rather not give that dollar, but you're willing to because you're sure you're going to gain from it, then you're doing it wrong. We should be cheerful in knowing that we're helping someone in need, that we're able to give something that benefits others, that the things of this world are less important to us than other people are. That's a very cheerful thought, I think. Verse 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Giving very, very generously might seem a little reckless. Well, God is able to make all grace abound, or as someone put it, where the generous spirit exists, God will provide the means of expressing it. Well, I, I want to give generously. I really do. Do I have the faith to give away my entire paycheck? Maybe one time could probably do it once. Could I give it away every time? Will God provide for my needs, all sufficiency and all things? That's what it says. I'm not sure that I have a clear view of the things that I really need. 
I think that he would provide all sufficiency in all things. I believe this. But what I think I need and what God thinks I need are not necessarily the same thing. What I think I need in order to give away my entire paycheck is for God to tell the bank to forgive this loan on this half-finished house I have. I don't know. I'd rather not live in a tent, you know, in a park or something. I like where I'm at. So how do I reconcile this? Well, let's look to Scripture. First Timothy 5 and 8, and I'm sorry, I don't have that one on the board, but it says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Okay, so maybe I need to make sure I can pay the mortgage. I really don't want my kids to be homeless and hungry. I mean, they're already hungry all the time anyway. But have you ever had the opportunity to give something that was really hard to give, except it wasn't? Hard to give because it's a financial strain, a real sacrifice, but not hard to give because you really couldn't want anything more than that opportunity to make a real difference in someone else's life. Now, there's different levels of that kind of scenario. Uh, you might have somebody that is in a bind, needs some money. They're, they're, really, they're really in a pinch, going to get their car repossessed or something, and you can, you can help them out. You might have to eat some ramen noodles for a while, stay away from the restaurants, be pretty tight for a month. You know, that's a, that's a generous gift. That's making a personal sacrifice for somebody else. Maybe you've got to donate an organ to save a life. That's a pretty generous gift. I don't know what kind of experiences that you may have had, but the concept here is that we should feel like that when we give. We should feel like it is a sacrifice and there's nothing you could do to change the fact that I want to make this sacrifice, that it's the right thing to do, it feels good to do it, yeah, it hurts financially or surgically or whatever, but it feels good. You want to do it. And not just the one time you get to give a kidney or whatever. It's, it should feel like you're, you're doing something great at every opportunity that you have to give. Looking on in verse 10, Paul says, Now may he who supplies the seed to the sower, obviously we're talking about God, and bread for food, supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness, while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. So Paul is asking for a blessing on the offering here. He's recognizing God as the supplier and asking him to multiply those resources like only God can do. Paul prays that the Corinthians would be blessed, enriched in everything, meaning spiritual and physical, because of their generous liberal giving, their liberality. And God gets the thanks for all that. And then he says, For the admonition of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God, while through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. I just realized that's one long sentence. We can find here a little additional motivation for giving. 
Uh, so let's break that long sentence down. Some of these benefits of giving, it supplies the needs of the saints. That's pretty practical, right? Food and shelter, other necessities, this is a good thing. It also causes many thanks to God. Giving to Christians uh, certainly makes them thankful to you for your gift. But we as Christians are faithful to thank God. We know that it's because of him that you're inspired to give. And it's because of him that you're able to give. And so you bring people closer to God with your gift. This service, this giving, it glorifies God because it's a testament to his work. It's evidence of the effect that the gospel has on our lives. It says they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing. Well, we're changed by that gospel. What could indicate more of a change from our natural desires than to desire to sacrifice selfish gain for the benefit of others that we might not even know? That's not really our nature, right? It's evidence that that we've got something changed in us. Another benefit is that the recipients of the gift will be praying for them. They long for them because they sincerely love them because of the grace of God. (coughs) It's always good to get somebody to say a prayer. Now we're just one more verse in this chapter from closing it here, but um, let's look at a few basic guidelines in Scripture on giving. Uh, I hope what we've looked at so far has kind of set our minds right about it and how, how we should think and, and, and understand um, what it is to give. And some of these additional thoughts, I think, will kind of complete the picture for us. Jesus tells us that giving should not be done to be seen of men. Uh, Matthew 6, 1 through 4, Jesus says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues as in the streets, that they may have their glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Again, that's not a complicated thing. It just means that we don't do this in vainglory. We are not doing it for attention or respect. 1 Corinthians 13 and 3 says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. If we aren't giving with love, why are we doing it? I can't think of any other reason besides love than for self-gain. We talked about how we're not giving for the purpose of receiving it back or respect or anything else that we might gain by giving. Well, the opposite side of that is that we're giving out of love. It's just, it's meaningless without love. Mark 9 and 41. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. All that we do, we do in his name. Giving through the church offering is giving through the body of Christ. That's kind of a a pretty practical way of giving in the name of the Lord. 
when our congregation supports Christians in need or supports the work outside our doors or et cetera, everything that we do as a congregation with that money, there's no doubt that that's in the name of the Lord. And this is not to say that we can't give outside of the church offering, of course, uh, but that's easy too. If you make it known that you're a Christian, if it's obvious to people, then people have little reason to wonder why you're being so generous. 1 Corinthians 16 and 2. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. It wasn't too long ago when we studied this. Um, Paul was talking about things, kind of how, how it should work in the assembly. Uh, it was orderly church service and, and, in general, what should be going on during worship. And this is a piece of that. But we want to be giving regularly and systematically, not just because it's an orderly procedure for services, but because of the impact it has. So uh, this thought's, an, again, a little bit of a stretch, but I want to go back to that presentation on the morality of using fossil fuels. And all these people, everybody agrees that solar and wind energy pollutes less, and that's good. Nobody disagrees there. The problem is that the sun doesn't always shine and the wind doesn't always blow. So unless you can go without electricity, and we really can't, then you absolutely have to keep the fossil fuels as a backup. So you end up having both anyway. Well, the fossil fuels, they're reliable. They're more useful. We get more benefit out of it. Not just because we're using more of that. It's the other way around. We're using more of that because it's more useful. It's abundant and it's reliable. So with that mindset, looking at the gift, sure, a nice big gift once in a while is a good thing, like this free and clear energy from, from wind. That's great. Um, when you give something huge, it has this impact, it, it stirs up emotions. I love to see that happen. It warms my heart when some generous donor does something that, especially, you know, a big group of kids or anything like that, it's, it's just great to see that. It's a, this wonderful thing. But if you step back and look at the big picture, continuous, reliable support is a much bigger deal. And it largely goes unnoticed, but that's good because that goes back to the, you know, doing it in secret and not standing in the corner shouting what you're doing great. It's important that we give regularly, steadfast. There's a lot more benefit for the giver and for the receiver. Hebrews 13 and 16. But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. To do good and to share. Is that really a sacrifice? Well, it's in the Bible. Yes, it is a sacrifice. And that's what our giving should be. There is not a dollar figure that represents a sacrifice for everyone. There's not this universal value. If you do this much money... You can call that a sacrifice. At times, you might be in need of church support and can't pay your bills, and life is really tough. And you reach in your pocket and you empty out the loose change that you have in the offering, and that's a sacrifice. That may be hard to do. That, that could be something that gets your next meal. Do you feel like you're giving anything up when you give an offering? God is well pleased if, if we're sacrificing for others. And in closing, 
Verse 15 says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And I really can't think of a more fitting way to end a conversation about giving. If anything at all puts giving into perspective for us, it's God's giving. Everything we have is given by him. Now, can we describe that? I can't, not even close. I'd be speechless trying. Everything that we have been promised yet to come is given by him. And that blows away what we have that we already can't describe. He gave us salvation when he gave us Jesus. We have a promise that, guess what? Indescribable. We can give a gift of money that truly makes a difference in the lives of many. We can return some of this wealth that we've been blessed with to the giver. And he can multiply and increase it. We can look at it and say, yeah, I'd kind of rather hang on to it. Most of it anyway. I can give some, but I don't want to sacrifice too much. There is value in money and wealth. But the value of wealth and the value of redemption by God is not even something we can talk about as comparable. Not in the same, same book. It's not the same thing. Our focus tonight has been on the mindset of giving. And we're closing here with some thoughts on getting. We're, we're having thoughts on what we're getting out of being a Christian. And if you don't think you're part of that deal, now would be a really good time to talk about it. We're going to have an invitation. Uh, when we stand and sing, if you feel like you're missing out on the gift, the giver has it for you and want you to receive it. If you're in his fold and you have anything that, that you need help with, if you need prayers, if you need support, if you need anything at all that the church can help with, we'd invite you to come and sit in the front row as we stand and sing.